0: That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: Today's program was brought to you by Patina Events at Brooklyn Botanic Garden. An idyllic location for weddings, corporate events, and parties of any style. Visit us at patinaevents.com.
0: This week on Meetin Three, it's our season four finale, and we're sharing some of our greatest kitchen joys.
1: Maybe most people consider making it too much work or too messy, but this is the food that's worth the work and worth the wait.
2: You always know where the thing is because you put it away the right way the first time.
3: You just sort of stand there and you know, with your hand on your hip and one leg outstretched, glass of wine in your hand staring into the refrigerator going okay speak to me oh yeah what are you
1: doing with the celery tonight I'm making a simple syrup for a gin cocktail with the celery and I also found a recipe for a celery
0: soup that's going to use up the celery and the potatoes and some of that dill that we still have hanging out in there <laughs> tune in and be inspired to find the joy in your kitchen and don't forget to subscribe to Meet in 3 wherever you listen to podcasts
3: All right, hello. This is Lisa Held coming to you live from Full Service Radio at the Line Hotel in Adams Morgan, Washington DC. And you're listening to The Farm Report, a Heritage Radio Network show about the people, processes, and policies that shape how food is produced today. So, today is exciting. Um it's the first episode of the new fall season, but more importantly, the very first episode recording from DC. So, Um, I'm used to our cozy shipping container at Roberta's Pizza in Brooklyn. Um, No more watching people eat pizza, but I am watching people get coffee um, at the cup we all raised for in the Line Hotel. (laughs) Um, So new views, same show. Um, And I'm so grateful for the partnership between Heritage Radio and Full Service. And I can't wait to introduce all of you to new farmers and other experts working in the mid-Atlantic And to dig into more conversations about farm policy, given our new home in the nation's capital, so I can't think of a better place to start than with my guest today, Glenn Hurwitz, the CEO of Mighty Earth. Glenn, welcome. Hey,
2: great to be here.
3: So. Mighty Earth is an environmental organization, and it's chaired by a former congressman. Is that right?
2: Yeah, Henry Waxman. who he was probably the most prolific and successful legislator of the last 50 years, at least when it came to producing progressive legislation. Right. Uh, he authored um, the Clean Air Act of 1990 that underpins most of the climate action that's happening right now, Safe Drinking Water Act, and a lot of other foundational legislation, including in other areas like Obamacare.
3: Huh. So, and he was really involved in climate legislation. So it was a natural thing after um, he left the government to sort of keep keep going, but as a nonprofit. And, you know. Yeah,
2: that's right. I mean, he had worked in, behind the scenes, really, as a as a legislator. He's uh, there's no he, there's nobody who really touches him in terms of inside access, credibility, and he knew how to get laws passed. But the reality was that when 2015 hit. Um, he, was no more, he was not going to be in the majority. Mm. Uh, you don't have much power. It can be very frustrating. And he still wanted to make a big impact. Uh, and so we teamed up and founded Mighty Earth because one of the great things about having an NGO is even when you can't get something go- done with government, our plan B is to transform the private sector, transform the big industries, mm. in, especially, including and especially in agriculture. Uh, that are driving deforestation, water pollution in the Midwest, Mid-Atlantic, and elsewhere, uh, and and work on other big issues.
3: Right. And that is why I invited you here today, right, Um, to talk about a new report that Mighty Earth just released. um, And it's Titled Cargill, the worst company in the world. So super optimistic and (laughs) (laughs) not aggressive at all. Um, uh, When was it officially released?
2: Not our most subtle report, I guess. But uh, born of five years of frustration with this company, to be honest. Uh, We released it uh, in early July. Uh, and just to give a, a little bit of the backstory. So okay. I've been working to protect the world's uh, rainforests and other ecosystems and transform our systems to sustainable agriculture for really many, many years now. And um, in 2014, I'd been helping advise the then UN Secretary General Ban Ki-moon on okay. the Climate Action Summit. And he wanted to feature the private sector uh, as taking action and, and you know focus on the things that they could do. And he turned to us and said... What would be a really globally significant commitment? Mm. And we said, well, look, we just, um, along with our allies, persuaded Cargill, which is the world's biggest food and agriculture company, uh, and America's largest privately held company. It's even bigger than the Coke brothers. Yeah, that shocked Koch me. Industry. I didn't realize it was
3: the biggest privately held company. Like that's I, crazy. Yeah,
2: and yeah. you know, people, it it makes a huge portion of the food that we eat, uh, and whether it's animal feed, cocoa, palm mm. oil, uh, chicken. Uh, a lot of it comes from Cargill. And yet, you know, most people probably have never heard of the company.
3: Or if you have, I think you just think like, oh, maybe they sell beef. Like, that's the one. Yeah, exactly. Right, right. Maybe
2: you've heard about all their E. coli beef requests. Right, And (laughs) so it's broken through (laughs) in the news there. Right. Um, Yeah, it's it's this incredibly powerful, far-reaching company, not just in the United States, but globally. Mm. And uh, so we had just persuaded them uh, after a very hard campaign to... Uh, commit to a policy to stop buying from companies that tore down the rainforest for palm oil in Southeast Asia. Okay. And we, we, they have a much broader reach than just Southeast Asia. So they're um, one of the biggest cocoa companies in the world. Uh, they're one of the largest soy and corn uh, traders, uh, both in the United States and mm-hmm. South America. Uh, you know, they they sell meat. We said, look. If they could expand their commitment from just palm oil, where they're a relatively minor player, to all the, uh, these other commodities where they're the leader, that would not only change the significant portion of the world's agriculture and food that they touch, right. but it would set a leadership example, and we think we could get momentum to get all the other big companies to do it. Mm-hmm. And so uh, Ban Ki-moon said, great, love to feature them. If you can get them to do that, I will stand with the CEO at the Climate Summit, celebrate them as the leading example of private sector action on climate. Hmm. So I then went to the people at Cargill and said, look, you know, we had this hard campaign, but we've got this great opportunity. Negotiated with them until 11 p.m. the night before the summit. They signed off. They agreed. David McLennan, their CEO, who's hmm. now pictured on the cover of our report. Is
3: he, he's still the CEO. He's still the yeah. CEO.
2: Uh, made this announcement that they would uh, work to end deforestation by, no, by 2020 okay. across all the major commodities where they do business. We celebrated it. He got loads of great news coverage there's a unfortunate picture of us arm in arm smiling (laughs) right afterwards on on my wall which is now a bitter reminder and you just have to put the
3: report frame next to it i guess yeah exactly well that's
2: right he and he was so when i saw him afterwards he was so chuffed he was just thrilled with all the positive Mm -hmm. attention they were getting and then months passed months passed and we kept saying okay great let's focus what What are you doing to implement it here are some plans here are the mm. issues here's what needs to happen and not only did they not do nothing within you know nine months after that they said oh we're not going to do it by 2020 we're going to do it by 2030 so they're saying you can to their all their suppliers they're right. saying it's like waving a, a checkered flag for the bulldozers you know go and defars for 16 years it's cool we'll st- still keep buying you Meanwhile, they're marketing themselves to companies like McDonald's, a whole Hayes, Mars, et cetera, et cetera, Walmart, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, as this green company. And, you know, here right. in DC, at least you see their ads about how sustainable they are, but it was not true. We tried, we, we worked with the, um, the world bank IFC behind the scenes to try and get them and the, their competitors to do better, um, around the world. And, that was not working at all. It was we, were, you know, they wouldn't even admit there was a problem with deforestation or agricultural pollution. Uh, so finally, we started to really investigate what they were doing, right? And that that you know ultimately results in a series of investigations that culminated in this report.
3: So you actually went down to the rainforest and and were getting firsthand accounts of what was happening.
2: Yeah, and we we did that across many countries around the world. Mm-hmm. I think. With Cargill in particular, and I, you know, I think it's emblematic of our food system, our modern food system as a whole, you know this one company has its tentacles reach um, really around the world. so we were working on these individual issues, so like we divide up our work, you know we have an Africa team, South mm-hmm. America team, US team, et etc, and we found a common theme, which was uh, wherever, wherever we turned, Cargill was not only causing incredible damage directly but it was also obstructing industry efforts to do better. So, uh, for example, we um, did this first ever, unfortunately, investigation into deforestation for chocolate, uh, which comes from Ghana and Ivory Coast. Mm. And uh, it's really quite terrible. They, they, like, it's even more egregious than the stuff we usually see where they huh. had up to 40% of the cocoa from Cote d'Ivoire, which is the world's largest cocoa producer, right. came from inside national parks and protected areas. Uh, and then is so, sold to Mars, Nestle, Hershey's, et etc, and Cargill was the company driving that, buying from it. Nobody ever focused on this, and they lost ninety percent of their forests in the country oh my and like gosh. it's called Ivory Coast, but there's two hundred elephants left right uh, and so we found that there um, in South America, we did uh, three different investigations, and we went to uh, the Brazilian Sahado, um, which is right next to the Brazilian Amazon. It's Mm a 200 million uh, hectare area. The Bolivian Amazon, Argentina, Paraguay. And we found two American companies that were driving the deforestation there. It really wasn't like a whole lot of companies. It was was confusing. It was mainly Cargill and another U.S. company uh, called Bungie. And they were the ones uh, installing infrastructure at the forest frontier, uh, providing loans, providing fertilizer. And a lot of the commodities we work on all these companies do is they just buy. And we think they have a responsibility to well, only buy from the responsible producers.
3: Yeah, that's what I was going to ask you. It's interesting because, I mean, you know, we're, we might as well just... I wanted to talk about deforestation and the Amazon fires because that, that the news came out just a few weeks after your report dropped, right? Yeah. And so this kind of was catapulted into the news cycle. And um, everybody was kind of focused on the president of Brazil, for good reason, right, who has had this focus on kind of opening up um, the Amazon to <laughs> destruction for you know, kind of summing it up. Um, and then, you know, the people on the ground there, the farmers who are clearing land for agriculture. But there isn't a lot of attention, attention on companies that are creating the market, right? right? And so I wanted to ask you about how much sort of does Cargill and other companies like it, how much of it is their responsibility that they're, if they weren't driving a market for the stuff, it wouldn't happen. And then now you're saying they're actually on the ground sort of helping or, <laughs> you know, setting up the they're infrastructure. Yeah,
2: totally. I mean, so what we found is we did this satellite analysis, um, and then we went across 3,000 kilometers mm-hmm. of the forest frontier. And you find over and over again, it's Cargill and Bunge silos in the areas where the deforestation is happening. There's a lot of other companies in the industry, but they tend to operate in the places where they're long established. There's not really as much deforestation happening. Okay. It's low risk. And so you look more deeply, and it's not just that they're going in and saying, oh, we'll buy your soy, um, or you know, in the case of another big meat company, JBS, we'll buy your cattle. Right. It's that they're, they're f- directly financing it. They're building the roads into the forest area. Um, they're providing loans to the worst farmers. Mm. And here's there's, there's two things that are tragic and, about this. One is that it's just totally unnecessary, because there are 1.6 billion acres of previously deforested land- all across South America, and this is true, of, you know, the tropics in general, mm. where you can expand agriculture without sacrificing native ecosystems.
3: That shocked me so much in the report, and but so then why? Why not just use that land? Like, what is the reasoning in clearing more?
2: So, great question and perplexing question. <laughs> yeah. Um, the reality is that there's many farmers, ranchers who've been uh, incentivized, often by these companies to go into areas where there's not agriculture and somebody, you know, they may own the land. And so they want to make a profit off of it. And the way they see to do that is to clear it. So even though in theory, if you took any sort of step back from a government perspective or even from a corporate perspective about where to invest for individual actors on the ground, they say, well, you know, you know that might be true in general that you could grow soy or cattle on the previously deforested land, but this area that I own is completely covered in rainforest and we're going to get rid of that and plant a soy plantation. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that... So there's ways you can get around it and there's yeah. ways you have got around it. I mean, for one thing, you know, relatively small-scale financial incentives will do it, just including just not buying from people who are engaged in deforestation. Right. We've seen that work over and over again. In the Brazilian Amazon itself, uh, in 2006, due to campaigns like the ones that we're running... Uh, McDonald's and other companies actually forced Cargill and its competitors to ban any deforestation within the Brazilian Amazon for soy, and it worked. Uh, within three years, deforestation plummeted to near zero levels for soy in the Brazilian Amazon. It stayed at near zero levels since then. Okay, it's been probably the biggest environmental and climate success in the world. They've shown they can do it. The problem is. While they've protected the Brazilian Amazon, they've kept the bulldozers running in the Brazilian Cerrado, in the Bolivian Amazon, in Argentina, and Paraguay. Um, and the crazy thing is in the, in the Brazilian Amazon where they've done this, they've been able to expand the area planted with soy by 6 million acres, even as they've eliminated deforestation. Brazil has doubled its agricultural production overall in that time. Mm. And the frustrating thing about Bolsonaro, but, you know, also true in Bolivia with Evo Morales, who's a ultra left winger and Mm -hmm. has the same problems is they, they like seem blind to the, their own environmental and economic success. Um, you know, I, I got involved in this work to protect the rainforest because I went to Bolivia Mm. to write a book about their then new president, Evo Morales, and I flew over a large part of the country in a jet. It was like 35,000 feet in the air, and for an hour, you looked out the window over what used to be the Amazon, and all you could see was scrub. And I found that tragic and moving. And I remembered when I was in middle school and doing a run for the rainforest, and that that moment was what inspired me to get involved. And I, the, I think back to that all the time because the tragedy of the deforestation that is happening is it's so unnecessary and these yeah. companies themselves have shown it's not necessary.
3: Right. That that's really interesting. In your work down there too, did you get to talk to a lot of farmers that are working down there and kind of get to understand their struggle in terms of like you said, you know, maybe they're clearing land because that's the only option, yeah. you know, that they they have the land and that's how they make a living. Like, what are some of the struggles of the actual farmers there?
2: So, in terms of the big soy and cattle ranchers who are driving the deforestation, I think it's important to have an accurate perception of who mm. they are. Um, it's really different from even large-scale farmers in the United States. The you know average farm size in a lot of the areas we're investigating is over two thousand acres. It is not uncommon for us to come across. You know, farms or plantations right. that are fifty or hundred thousand acres. Wow. So these are commercial industrial operations that stretch out to the horizon. Okay, they're well capitalized. The landlord, the people who own it, are often in Buenos Aires or Sao Paulo. Yeah. Um, and you know, a lot of the time, it's you know, it's not just farms. There's people who live in the farms. There's both indigenous communities who rely on it and local communities who may do sort of what we may normally think of farming on a smaller scale. Right. And part of the, the terrible impact of a lot of this you know, vast industrial monoculture is that you're displacing those people. Um, and, and that you know, is why hundreds of indigenous uh, South Americans are killed every year uh, by ranchers and soy farmers, to get them off the land, to intimidate them off the land. So uh, you know, the struggles that we've seen um, have been the smaller-scale farmers who suddenly have planes flying overhead Uh, dousing soy fields with pesticides Mm. Uh, and we've we've documented as as you know health experts have you know huge health impacts from that uh you know and for indigenous communities who rely on the forest you know it's their livelihood is gone yeah Uh, and so that's um the challenge i mean you're really it's 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 somewhat different from the challenges we face in the united states which are also driven to a great extent by these same companies in that the 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 people we're sort of fighting are, are really like large scale, comer- they're companies basically not right. pe- not people. Uh, and, and that's the and challenge. And
3: maybe even the person, the person working on the ground, the farmer, the farm worker is not the person yeah. who is actually driving yeah, exactly. the, the economics or. Exactly. Yeah. And,
2: and, you know, for, for soy especially, but even cattle, you know, you see a soy farm in Brazil, it's, like, there'll be eight combines going in a row. These are highly mechanized operations driven by satellites. It's, it's, I mean, it's sort of impressive in its own way, but uh, also highly destructive.
3: Right. Really, yeah. It's like almost the scope of the problem is so big, it it can be kind of, it's just really crazy to talk about and even try to imagine, you know?
2: Yeah. Um, I I was just going to say, I mean, I, I do think it's important to say that there have been, really large-scale successes, like mm. what I mentioned in Brazil. In our work in Southeast Asia and palm oil, it took a lot of fighting and campaigns on customers like Mars and Nestle and Hershey's and others. But over the last five years, we've reduced deforestation for palm oil in Southeast Asia from a million acres a year to less than 200,000 acres a year. And that's still 200,000 too many. We're still working on it and fighting on, like out in Papua and Borneo. But there has been significant progress, and it's because these companies have actually tried to do something about it. Right. They've said, we're not going to buy from anybody who engages in deforestation and so that signal goes out across the industry very quickly because people know if i knock down this rainforest i'm not going to be able to sell that product right uh, to the global market and, and so they lose the incentive they may grumble they may whine but a hell of a lot of forest is
3: saved right um, and so you know we sort of started with deforestation because we're talking about the amazon right now um, in a lot of places um, but that was really just one of the topics in the report um, that you got into um, in terms of Cargill's um, behavior. There's also systemic pollution that violates federal and state laws. Um, there's food safety, like salmonella and E. coli uh, outbreaks that you mentioned earlier. Child labor. Um, what are what are some of the other sort of big takeaways from the report?
2: Yeah. And, you know, it's different issues in different places. But, mm-hmm. you know, this is not just something happening thousands of miles away in the rainforest mm-hmm. um, in the Midwest, in the Chesapeake Bay region where we are. Uh, Cargill and other companies like Tyson have had a huge impact. And so um, and they're all linked. Like Cargill sells the animal feed to Tyson. You know, it's right. it's uh, so what we found in the Midwest, it's actually similar in the sense that it's the same companies, especially Cargill, are allowing um, their suppliers, farmers, to pour uh, millions of tons of fertilizer into the water. Uh, It doesn't just pollute the water, it also pollutes the climate. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, we've had a New Jersey-sized dead zone in the Gulf of Mexico. Other waterways, like the Chesapeake Bay, like the Great Lakes, have suffered from agricultural pollution for the same reason. Right. And then when you go out and look on the ground, unfortunately, you see really bad practices. Um, You know, it's not just... Overseas that they're clearing native vegetation. We we still have a significant amount of prairie in the United States, but farmers will clear it, and companies like Cargill are, or and their customers, put no limits on them. You know, going right up to the river, mm-hmm. uh, and that's why so much pollution is able to wash into the river. Why waterways across the United States are polluted, um, and it's you know they have this no questions asked approach to buying commodities, and meanwhile consumers want to know. Where their food comes from, and it's produced in a manner consistent with their values, mm. and we—and here's the amazing thing—is we have found we're doing grassroots organizing all over the United States in rural communities. We have found that even in the Trumpiest counties, people are pouring out for our campaigns in ways that we never anticipated. Um, Tyson, which is uh, one of Cargill's big customers mm-hmm. uh, and a big, huge meat company in its own right, they've been—they ex- tried to expand in Topeka, Kansas. Uh, And there's just a sort of organic grassroots outpouring. We help, but really it just came from like the community. They organized to kick out this Tyson's expansion. And that was unprecedented to have a rural community say, we don't want a large, big ag expansion. Then Tyson moved to Tennessee and to a really conservative county there thinking they could, and they had a sweetheart deal with the state. Same thing happened. People organized in the county, kicked them out of that county. And it's still a fight going on in other counties in Tennessee. But we're really finding this sort of, people are seeing the impacts of the water. Uh, They're concerned about all the other negative impacts of big ag. And they want these companies to take action. And, you know, most of the changes they have to make are relatively small and putting in simple requirements, cover crops, fertilize, you know, not putting on fall fertilizer application, uh, protecting the buffer areas, basic stuff that for most, most of the time after a few months or years is profitable. Right. And there's just no requirement and no care. You know, the government isn't doing anything, but we wish, you know, we've seen these companies be able to do something when they try, and that's why we're asking them to do so.
3: Right. Um, On that note, we're going to take a quick break. Um, When we come back um, more with Glenn Hurwitz, we're going to talk a little bit more about Cargill, and we're going to have a brand new segment called Farm Bill 5.
1: Patina Restaurant Group offers unparalleled service in New York's most iconic locations, including Lincoln Center, Rockefeller Center, and Macy's Herald Square. Patina is also the exclusive caterer at Brooklyn Botanic Garden. From meetings and presentations in the glass-walled atrium to galas in the renovated Palm House and intimate wedding showers at Yellow Magnolia Cafe, your event will be perfectly imagined and customized at Brooklyn Botanic Garden. You can also enjoy a la carte brunch and lunch at the picturesque Yellow Magnolia Cafe overlooking Pool Terrace. Executive chef Morgan Jarrett's unique menu offers warm, distinctive cuisine with a focus on local vegetables, grains, and sustainably sourced meats and fish.
0: Are you enjoying this podcast? Heritage Radio Network has plenty more. My name is Dave Arnold, and I'm the host of Cooking Issues here on Heritage Radio Network.
2: Every week, I answer listeners' questions on the latest innovative techniques, equipment, and ingredients in the food world. Have a question about hot rodding your oven to make great pizza? Give us a call. Hydrocolloid, sous vide, liquid nitrogen? No problem. You can find Cooking Issues wherever you listen to podcasts and on heritageradionetwork.org.
3: This is Lisa Held. We're back. You're listening to The Farm Report on Heritage Radio Network, recorded at Full Service Radio at The Line, D.C. I'm here with Glenn Hurwitz from Mighty Earth. We've been talking about Cargill. Um, we're going to get back to that topic and talk a little bit more about the report. Um, but before we do that, we're going to introduce a new segment. And Glenn, you're going to be my guinea pig for this. I hope you're ready.
2: <laughs> Cannot wait. <laughs> um,
3: so this is going to be called Farm Bill 5. Essentially, it came out of thinking about the fact that the Farm Bill impacts the overall food system in this country more than any other piece of legislation Um, The Congressional Budget Office estimates that programs in the 2018 Farm Bill will amount to $428 billion in spending over the next five years. And it impacts basically everyone in massive ways. Farmers, uh, food insecure families, anyone who eats food or lives on this planet, basically. (laughs) Um, But, you know, I was thinking about, has anybody not on a policy team in an office in Washington ever actually read the Farm Bill? Have you ever read it, Glenn?
2: I don't. I've not read the whole thing. I've read <laughs> um, snippets. Uh,
3: well, impenetrable i I, pull, snippets. Uh, I pulled it up to start to start working on this, and um, you know it's just an easy 529 pages. So I'm I'm a little disappointed you haven't <laughs> made it through. Um, so I want people to be able to better understand what's going on with agricultural policy. So how it's going to work is I'm going to choose a, sh- a short section each week for a guest to read. And then we're going to talk about what it means just for a couple of minutes. All right. You ready, Glenn? I'm ready. All right. Here born, we go.
2: Born ready to read, the, to read Subtitle F.
3: Here we go. Okay,
2: Subtitle F, Agricultural Conservation, Conservation Easement Program, Section 2601, Establishment and Purposes, Section 1265B of the Food Security Act of 1985, 16 U.S.C. 3865B, is amended, 1 in paragraph 3 by inserting, quote, that negatively affect the agricultural uses and conservation values, quote, end quote, after, quote, that land, end quote, and two, in paragraph four, by striking, restoring, and, and inserting, restoring or." Section 2602, <coughs> definitions. Section 1265A of the Food Security Act of 1985, 16 U.S.C. 3865A, is amended. One, in paragraph 1B, by striking, quote, subject to an agricultural land easement plan as approved by the secretary, end quote. Two, by redesignating paragraphs two, three, four, and five as paragraphs three, four, six, and seven, respectively. Three, by inserting after paragraph one, the okay. following. All right, and I we're think gonna that's, stop. Yeah, that's,
0: that's probably <laughs>
3: yeah. I, I had, it's so funny because that's mm-hmm. like, you know, not even a paragraph. Like that is, I, I thought, oh, that that'll take like two seconds and it was already just kind of ridiculous. So, um, obviously we can see that it's really hard to, to understand what you're reading, right? Even if you want to figure it out. Um, so just really quickly. So that was from the agricultural conservation easement program section. Um, so, Do you want (laughs) to... I was going to explain it, but do you want to talk about what a... Do you know what a conservation easement is?
2: I I do know what a conservation easement is. Why don't you explain it? Sure. Basically, it's when a landowner designates uh, land that says it can't be developed. Um, So it can be used for nature conservation. So you'd say, you know, this forest land... can no longer be developed. I still own it, but it can't be developed. And in agriculture, it can be used to keep agricultural land in agriculture rather than having a strip mall come in.
3: Exactly, and it's amazing because it sort of like has all these benefits in that it preserves the land. Right, the land can't be developed um, from an environmental perspective. That's good, and then the farmers compensated. And then if the farmer um, wants to sell his land to a young farmer, say um, to get started, that land the price can be lower for the young farmer getting started because the, the older farmer has already been compensated. Um, and so farm bill conservation easement programs in various forms have protected over 4 million acres of wetlands, farmland and grasslands since 1990. Um, and in 2018 in the farm bill, I'll tell you what, what actually is in there in a very succinct <laughs> manner. Um, the 2018 farm bill nearly restored easement funding that had been cut uh, in the last one, to its highest levels, providing $450 million per year for the conservation easement program. And one other change that is really relevant to agriculture, in evaluating applications, uh, the 2018 Farm Bill adds a new priority, which is to fund easements that maintain agricultural viability, which is related to what you said, Glenn. So that would include easements that don't just conserve the land, but also allow a farmer to productively operate a farm on the protected land. So that's it. Great, <laughs> <laughs> we did <get> it. <laughs> Farmville education. Uh, I guess for next week we're gonna have to, I'm gonna have to choose an even shorter portion. Maybe <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> um, okay, so back to back to Cargill. Um, one thing that I was thinking about. Well, a, a couple things. One thing from our conversation earlier that I want to dig into is you know we, we sort of laughed about calling them the worst company in the world, but um, Something that jumps into my head right away is, like, is, are these things we're talking about, deforestation, all these pollution, all these issues, are they kind of built into the model, into the system that Cargill is a part of, or is Cargill really much worse than all the other companies in industrial agriculture?
2: So, to a great extent, a lot of these problems are built into the system. Mm-hmm. I mean, the part of the system is not is having this no questions asked approach. It's right. the commodification of agriculture. In some ways, we are, in a small way, trying to decommodify agriculture. So, that, you know, it's not just all mixed together. That mm-hmm. there is a separation between stuff that's produced well and that's that's produced poorly. And hopefully, we can minimize the amount that's produced poorly. Mm-hmm. Um, having said that, I, you know, we have seen many examples of success. I mentioned the decline in deforestation in palm oil and in the Brazilian Amazon for soy itself. Um, but, I, you know, I think there's, there is huge variation. What we've seen with Cargill is competitors like Louis-Dreyfus' company in the same business, and even Kafka, the Chinese state-owned company, which is mm. American. I'm ashamed to say they're ahead of the, Amer- the American companies. Huh. Um, they, they have taken action. They, they have policies that say we won't buy from anybody who engages in destruction of native habitat. Uh, they are, you know, these companies are acting much more rapidly. When we find problems through our satellite monitoring, they jump on it. Mm. And unfortunately, we have not had the same experience with uh, with Cargill. So there, we've also, in the United States, Smithfield uh, Pork, which is a you know big industrial producer, mm-hmm. um, has set a goal of uh, reducing its greenhouse gas emissions by 25% by 2025. And it's well on its way to getting there. Hmm. They've introduced more rotational grains uh, into the mix. I think when companies actually try, they find not only that they can do it but that they can do it affordably. Mm. And that's I think you know it's where we get frustrated when you see both large companies like Cargill but also customers like like McDonald's, Ahold Delhaize, Mars not doing anything to necessarily favor those who are doing a better job even you know within the context of the industrial system. I think mm-hmm. you know it's important to say we are working to stop the worst abuses of agriculture that have the biggest impact on the environment and communities. It's not the you know what we're asking these companies to go to is not necessarily all the time regenerative agriculture. It's, right. you know, we're trying to make much more basic incremental, and, and, you know, change. incremental, oh. inc- I would say somewhat incremental, but you know, if you stop deforestation, that's just in climate terms, right. you know, uh, more than the entire transportation sector. It's between 10 and 20% of global pollution, uh, changing forests and land use more broadly, is one third of the near-term potential to solve climate change. So it's a huge, it's a huge thing just to do these basic steps. Mm-hmm. You you can imagine agriculture um, if it's really well done, to become part of the solution uh, if it's channeled onto the right lands and done in a you know organic regenerative way. Um, but you know right now that's only a tiny percentage of production. We're we're really trying to change the ninety-five percent that is not touched by the more responsible, um, smaller scale model.
3: Right. Yeah. That makes sense. Um, and since the report came out, it's gotten some attention. Um, most notably, I think the New York times covered it. Um, have you heard from Cargill at all? Have you had conversations with the company since?
2: Yeah, well we have not lacked for access to Cargill, uh, but <laughs> sometimes access doesn't transform into action. So, um, in fact, uh, we were originally planning to release this report in early February uh, we, as is our general practice, we shared the report with the company that targets to give them a chance to respond to yeah. us. And if they had things they thought were wrong, they could make their case. So we sent it, There's, they acknowledged receiving it, but we were told they were not going to respond. Okay. Four days before the release, uh, their CEO, David McClennan, called me and said, uh, you know, his his picture is on the cover under
3: yeah, worst company
2: in the world. And said, uh, you know, he asked us not to release it, to give them two weeks to allow them to act on our recommendations. And so we had a good, probably hour-long initial discussion. We sent a follow-up memo with the points, uh, you know, whether it's fighting deforestation in South America, um, addressing slavery and deforestation in national parks in Cocoa, uh, you know, starting to just reach out and talk to the companies that are doing it better in the United States on agriculture. And, and you know, some of these were modest steps, but he said he would do them. Okay, And then the following five months were a microcosm of the frustrations that we'd had with Cargill over the previous five years. They did not follow up to a... a crazy degree. Part of our ask, they were like, well, I mean, I remember he said, I think we have a handle on these tropical rainforest questions, but this US agriculture stuff is is, is new to us. And this is for America's biggest food and agriculture company that's from Minnesota, you know, <laughs> in the heartland. It was crazy. But we said, okay, well, you know, as a first step, can you please talk to Smithfield? Can you talk to Kellogg's? Can you talk to Land O'Lakes that's doing the, this mm-hmm. farmer outreach? And then they just didn't do it. We'd call those companies and those organizations every week environmental defense fund, you know, and say, have you heard from Cargill? No, no, no. Uh, so that was frustrating. And at the, and then um, just, you know, five or six weeks ago I had dinner with Cargill's number two person after two more meetings, two more calls with the yeah. CEO. And she said, look, we're, we're not going to set a policy where we're going to, um, well we're going to announce a policy where we say we won't buy from producer of nature, native vegetation, but she said, we're not going to implement it, so it's not going to ever be implemented. So it was like um, that was the last straw that they... She
3: right. actually know, said, we're going to create the policy, so but we're had, not... Had, had,
2: at this point, they had already released a policy on the web, but they weren't changing how they acted. Yeah. We would test it, say, okay, we, we found you know these five instances of deforestation yeah. in this one place in Brazil. Will you take action? No. So... And their, here's their rationale. They say, look, we understand that you could target development just on degraded lands. But if we do that, then Bungie, our competitor, will just sweep in and buy from these people. But then what's frustrating is you go and talk to Bungie, and they say, if we stop doing it, then Cargill's going to jump in and buy. And so they, they can get around a table and come to an agreement, as right. they have done in many other cases. But they just have not been ready to do that. So you know, the, our ultimate critique of Cargill was great policy announcements, like with Ban Ki-moon. No follow up. Right. And meanwhile, rainforests continue to fall, the water's polluted, climate change crisis deepens. Getting worse. Uh, And that is, that, that, you know, ultimately is why we decided to launch the campaign because to this day we continue finding these problems. Here's the thing the other thing that Cargill told me directly they mocked their own customers like McDonald's and Mars and a whole Del Hayes, Walmart. Who have issued polite calls for them to address deforestation and agricultural pollution. Right. They are, Cargill defies them repeatedly over years, and there's no consequences. That, you know, when those companies launch a joint venture with the company or continue just buying hundreds of millions or billions of dollars worth of agricultural products, it's like their polite calls seem meaningless. Right. And so we're going to these companies, and the thing we ask, you know, people to do is, you know, whether it's going on our website, which is MightyEarth.org, you can write a letter to the CEO of uh, some of Cargill's biggest customers joining us or others for a, an action where you go to tell the store manager that you're upset about the fact that you're doing business with Cargill or using your investment portfolio to contact the company. Th- these are the things that will actually move Cargill and its ilk.
3: Yeah, I was going to ask you that. Like, What can an average person do if they're listening to this or if they're you know been reading about deforestation like what do you usually tell people is the most effective action that they can take well i would divide it into
2: two categories i think there's definitely things people can do on a personal level i mean certainly shifting towards a plant-based diet is a huge benefit for the planet on a personal level but it's not going to make the kind of systematic change that we need Mm -hmm. these companies are in our current political environment, the ones who really have the power to do that. How can you reach a company like Cargill that is, you know, one step removed in the global supply chain? It's through customers like McDonald's and Ahold. They are in Mars. They're very sensitive to these issues. Their, their brand is their most valuable asset. Mm. You know, it's not. You're not paying for the raw materials. You're paying for a, a brand, a feeling, a sensation, right. a reputation, and that's why we've. I think we've been successful in many cases, but. You know, I I think, um, you know, certainly go to our website, mightyearth.org, sign up, send an email. um, You know, then we'll suggest ways people can call companies. We are having events around the Climate Week of Action, September 23rd, in New York and elsewhere, um, outside the headquarters of some of these companies. There's actually a big gathering of all the agricultural companies in New York to discuss what they're doing on climate with deforestation at the top of the agenda. So that's a great opportunity. I mean, these companies are sensitive and it just needs to get to a critical mass.
3: Right. Well, I think that's a great place to end. Thank you so much for being here, Glenn.
2: Thank you. I've really enjoyed it.
3: Yeah, I appreciate it. Thank you all so much for listening to The Farm Report. If you enjoyed the conversation, please subscribe to the podcast, rate it, and share it. We'll be back next week with the founder of Little Wild Things, one of DC's growing urban farms. See you then.